so good to be together, isn't it? It, it, you don't realize how much you miss this until you come back, I think, you know. Um, I'm setting my time at 22 minutes is all we allowed as preachers in this. That's what I'm honoring, the brief, and I'm setting the tone. Um, okay, where are we? From memory. We're in, we're in week 19 of the book of Mark, guys. We're in week 19. I must be honest with you. I actually thought I would have chosen a more, um, a more loving, a more tender, a more like a gentle passage to come back to meeting after seven months. I wouldn't have necessarily chosen this one. I'm warning you on the front end. This is a hard-hitting uh, piece of scripture we're, we're journeying into. If you've got your Bibles or your device, here's the time. Ignore the, ignore the notifications, but open your Bible on your device or your hard copy Bible to Mark chapter 7. We're going to read from verse 1 to 23 today. And and the big idea is we're looking at authentic faith. We're looking at real faith, the kind of faith that goes below the surface of our beings, the kind of faith that penetrates the heart. Okay, The big idea today is authentic faith. It's faith below the surface Faith that impacts the heart. And what we're going to do today is we're going to be looking at the heart of Christianity. We're going to see what makes Christianity different than any other faith in the world. And I'm not trying to pick a a fight with other faiths uh, as much as I really believe this is the way. The way above all other ways. And, And I want to show you why that is today as we look at this text it's probably worth having not been in Mark for some time and having not been together for some time, we're doing a little recap of where we've been, right, through the book of Mark. We're in week 19, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, the premise of the book is Jesus is the Son of God who has come as our Savior King. That's what Mark is saying. In chapter 1 verse 1, I'm paraphrasing, Jesus is the Son of God who has come as our Savior King, right? And the rest of the next eight and a half chapters, Mark is trying to prove that claim. he's, He's pulling back a little bit of the curtain every week as he reveals more to us of who Jesus is. He's trying to say, Jesus is the King of the universe. Look, and we saw two weeks ago how he could walk on water. Sorry, five weeks ago. How he could walk on water. How he commands the storm. He's not just king of our lives. He's king of, of, of nature too. We saw him feed 5,000 people. He's a king that provides for his people. And each week, Mark is showing us more of how Jesus is the Son of God come as our Savior King. And where we pick up our story, Jesus has fed 5,000 people. He sent the disciples on the boat. He then came walking towards them uh, in the dark of the night. He calmed the storm. They arrive on the other side of Galilee. And then he, a crowd gathers and he's healing and he's healing people. And this is where we pick up our story. Can we pray before we jump in here? If ever there was a cause for a preacher to pray before he preached, it's today. Um, I've got nothing but my Bible passage in front of me and a heart that is full of it. So let's see what happens. Jesus, it is so good to be together. Lord, it is so good to be together. We as common ground are a people who delight in being together, but we delight even more in being in your presence. And we delight in being under your word in being shaped by your word. And we ask that today as we look at real faith, authentic faith. God, speak to us today from your word as to what that looks like. Amen. 
Okay, so now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes uh, who had come from Jerusalem, they, they were together. The Pharisees, the scribes, they come together from Jerusalem. And they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. That's an important phrase, tradition of the elders. And when they, um, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash uh, and, and there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of the cups and the pots and the copper vessels and even the dining couches. You get the idea here. Washing is really, really important to these guys, right? They wash before they eat. Now, it's got to do with clean, clean and unclean. Now, not clean and unclean in the sense of hygiene, right? It's good to wash your hands. We know this because of COVID, right? We got to wash our hands. We got sanitizer, all of that stuff. But this wasn't that kind of clean and unclean. This was clean and unclean in the in this, the closest we can understand as kind of Westerners to this is purity, purity before God, purity before other human beings, right? This is about washing in terms of being, I'm doing something that, that makes me clean, makes me pure before God and before other people. And, um, and this is a delegation of religious leaders who have come to, did you see that? They've come from Jerusalem to, to Jesus. This is the equivalent of 150 kilometers through the uh, most, kind of um, driest, barren area of the Karoo, right? This wasn't like just a stop on the way to somewhere. This was a mission that they were on to come and to do business, picking a fight with Jesus. And Mark sets the context for us. I mean, just worth stopping. He sets the context for us so well. He just, he's such an intelligent writer. He just gives, okay, so this is, this is the playing field for the story. And now he brings the tension in here now. Verse 5, and the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands. Okay. And I, and I think they're probably saying this with a kind of disdain in their voice, right? Why is it that Jesus, your disciples, you don't wash like we do? To which Jesus fires the first punch back, right? And he says to them, and he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, uh, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as the doctrines, the commandments of men, but you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus calls them hypocrites. The Greek word for hypocrite here, it's, it's a brilliant picture. It's a timely one as well. Um, it, the, the word in Greek for hypocrite is actually from the theater, the, the, the Greek theater, where, where, where someone would put on a mask and pretend to be something else in a play. And Jesus says, you, you, that's you, you're putting on a mask and pretending to be someone else that you're not. You're putting a mask on the outside to make yourself look a particular way. Yesterday, there were people all over the peninsula and all over the city of Cape Town who dressed up in scary outfits. They were pretending to be scary, right? This is not what the, the Pharisees are doing. They were dressing up and pretending to be holy. A hypocrite is someone who puts on a mask and pretends to be something they're not. Remember, our big idea is true faith. 
is a faith that goes beyond the surface. True faith penetrates the heart. And Jesus says to them, you hypocrites. He takes off the gloves and he fires the first punch. Now, what he takes exception to here is you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You actually reject the commandments of God and you hold to the tradition of men. What's going on here? The first area of hypocrisy that Jesus calls them on is he's saying, the highest authority in your life, your true authority, is not God and God's word. It's a horizontal authority. It's the traditions of men. What happened is uh, the Jewish people believe, and still to this day many of them believe, that when Moses went up to the mountain and received the ten, the, 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 not the Ten Commandments, the law, 613 laws contained in the Torah, he received two laws actually. There was the oral law and the written law. The written law is what we have in our Bibles. It's the Torah, 613 laws summed up by the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. That's the written law. But while Moses was there, he was able to ask God, how do we live this out? For instance, the law says nothing about can you take an elevator on the Sabbath? Is When you're Sabbath and you're not supposed to be resting, if you push the elevator button, is that work or is that not? The law won't tell you that. So there, Moses asked God all the questions about how that law is to be interpreted in our lives today, and the rabbis now have access to that information and they dispense it, the traditions of men. And so what happened is uh, 613 laws, you can imagine over many years, uh, a, a seed sprouted a forest of oral traditions. And in good intention, right? But what's happened for the Pharisees is they had allowed the, the tradition of men to usurp and become the highest place of authority. In a sense, uh, what they were doing, no, very clearly what they were doing is there were instances where the traditions of men conflicted with God's laws and they went with this over this. The issue that Jesus is addressing here is authority. What is the highest authority in your life? What's the application for your life and for me? Well, as I read the Bible, increasingly in our culture, I think the scriptures are being seen to be regressive. People say, oh, Jesus, Jesus I like. And parts of the Bible are like, but there's some parts of the Bible I cannot follow because they're too regressive. Uh, there's some things that, uh, that God asks us to do that are, no, we, we, don't, we can't do that any. Surely that's not for today anymore, etc., etc., right? You've heard this before. You've felt something of the pressure. I think this is a great parallel for us in looking at authentic faith to, faith, to ask this question, Really, who are we following? If God is only allowed to ask us to do things that we agree with, who's really God in our lives? Does does God really have a plan for our lives, or does God follow me with me where I go? When last did God ask you to do something that you didn't necessarily want to do? We're told, we're told Christianity, Christianity and follow your heart are kind of like merged into one these days. When last did you obey God in spite of your heart? When last did you obey God in spite of what you thought? When last did you obey God in spite of what you wanted to do? In spite of what your own maybe culture or peers or friends, family traditions thought was right because the reality is if 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 God can never ask us to do something that we ourselves necessarily disagree with God is God is like a robot that we've pre we've pre-programmed with our own presuppositions and and, and you 
follow your heart Christianity. You, you know what I mean by, by, by that, right? It, you lose the ability for God to grow you, for God to develop you, for God to, to stretch you beyond what you know. For God to be able to correct you, for God to be able to lead you somewhere where you're nervous to live, etc., 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 because God is always on our, He's always on, on, in the riverbanks of what He's allowed to do from our perspective. We are those people as common grounders who've said, God, I'm going to follow you regardless of where it leads. God, I want you to teach me. God, I'm inviting you to to trump my culture, to trump uh, some of my U.S. friends, to trump my political ideologies, to trump or not. No, no, I'm using the wrong word. Hey, sorry, I didn't. I didn't. That's what happens when I don't have my notes, guys. Scratch Trump from this discussion. When last did God ask you to do something that you didn't necessarily want to do or agree with? And how do we respond? The Pharisees had reached a place where they had elevated another authority over God's authority. And Jesus takes exception to them. Verse 9, he continues. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. For whoever reviles your father and your mother must surely die. That's the, that's the, the, the quoting the law here. But you say, if a man tells his father and mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. I'll explain that in a second. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making uh, null and uh, void the, the word of God by your tradition. Let me explain that. To Corbin was to take, let's say for instance I had a second home. I don't, but maybe I had a holiday home, right? I'd take that holiday home as a very devoted follower of Jesus and I'd dedicate that to God in Corbin, which meant Upon my death, I've written into my will, this will go to the temple. That sounds like a very holy thing, right? But what actually was happening was actually this dude in the story here had parents who had come under tough, uh, tough times. And so mom and dad come and they say, you know, Luke, I've, I've struggled. You know, we've been now retrenched during COVID. We've got nowhere to live. What are we going to do? And you say, oh, guys, mom and dad, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I really wish I could help you. But being such a holy Christian that I am, what I actually did, I dedicated my second home to God. And so although I can look after in the meanwhile, uh, you actually can't live there now because I'm so holy, I've given it to Jesus. And what's happened is the right thing for the wrong reasons is still the wrong thing. You know what I mean? It's, what's happening is there's a kind of Christianity that's got more to do with lawyerism than lovers. There's a lawyer faith, and please, lawyers, I know there's many lawyers in our church who love Jesus and work for justice. I'm not having a dig at lawyers. But there's a lawyer faith that says, can you help me find a loophole in the system so that I can get around it? I've got a restraint of trade, and I signed it when I came in now, but now things have changed, and now can you help me to find a loophole to get out of it? You know, I'm trying to do as little as I can to get away with this thing. Is the lawyer faith of the Pharisees versus the love of faith? who says, oh, you require this, I take this and take so much more. I just, I love to do what's right by you, God. And the Pharisees had crept into a kind of lawyerism in their hearts, looking for the loopholes, a kind of faith that's, that, that, that inconveniences our lives shallowly, rather than a faith that's the faith of the lover that says, God, I love you, I'll, I'll do this and that and so much more. Worth stopping and saying, 
How are you doing there? How are you doing in terms of lawyerism, in terms of loving God? Is it God, whatever it takes, I'm all in it, you have my heart. Or is it I'm trying to get by with a little, as little as I can? Because true faith goes beyond the surface. True faith penetrates the heart. Let's keep looking together as we go here. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. Can you say, nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of that person are what defile him. This is like Jesus dropping a bomb, right? This is a big deal. I have a friend who's a travel agent. She took a tour of, of um, business people overseas. They went to a restaurant. There were some Muslim people in the group. The re- there was some miscommunication. The restaurant served pork. It was a massive. This is the kind of thing that Jesus has just undone here, right? We carry on reading together. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. It was actually a parable. And he said to them, there are the... Uh, Then are you also without understanding? Sorry. His disciples don't follow what's happened here. And so they ask Jesus, Jesus, come and explain this to me. Do you not see whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters the heart but his stomach and is expelled literally goes into the latrine in Greek? Thus he declared all foods clean. This is a good thing. We're going to speak to this in a second. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within and they defile a person. We're speaking about true faith, faith that goes below the surface, faith that penetrates the heart. We're saying True faith is a faith that Christ has the, God has the highest authority in your life. And um, what we see here now is um, Jesus declares all foods unclean. This is the sub point. We're going to look at the main point in a second. The sub point is you can eat anything. So if you're a vegan, you're free to be a vegan, right? If you are a vegetarian, Veggies are good for you. You are free to eat veggies to your heart content. But if, but if, hypothetically, in my kitchen right now is a pork roast sitting in the oven, slow cooking gently with barbecue sauce that will turn into, a little bit later, just hypothetically, pulled pork buns for dinner for our family, then praise God, you can do that too, just hypothetically. Uh, Jesus declared, why did Jesus do that? Because it's not what comes into our hearts through our stomachs that makes us unclean, as was thought. The problem of the day was not pork. Jesus is saying the problem is sin that lives inside of our hearts, and it is in all of our hearts. You've heard me say this before. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who wrote A Life in the Day of Ivan Denisovich, a Nobel Prize winning author, he said this, we would love to believe, would we not, that the problem of evil is our 
out there, across other boundaries, in other cultures, over there in the newspapers, in someone else's life. But that is simply not true. The line between good and evil is not on the boundaries. It is not on the skin colors we draw. The line between good and evil runs through every single human heart. Jesus is saying the problem is not something that you can sanitize away like in our culture. We just rub our hands and then we're now suddenly clean. It's not, we're always looking for the shallow solution. It's, it's seven steps to a better life. It's five exercises you can do. It's just place these crystals in your home, in these positions, and then everything will change. It's vote for this political party because capitalism will save the day or socialism will save the day or education will save the day. If we can just get rid of corruption, then, no, as, as much as, just hear me, don't hear what I'm not saying, we want all of those things, well, some, you know what I mean. But none of that changes the human heart. And Jesus is saying the human problem is a sin issue, it's within us. Next week, I mean, there's like a cliffhanger here. I'm so tempted to give the solution, but actually Mark only gives us the solution next week. (laughs) It's true. In the next chapter, how how does Jesus deal with the unclean? This week, what we've got to see is the unclean is not everyone else's problem. It's my problem and it's your problem. Our problem is not our external circumstances. It cannot be solved like that. The problem is a sin issue that runs through the heart of every human being. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, if I am a grass field uh, and I want to bear wheat fruit, what I need to do is I need to, uh, it, it doesn't help me to shave the grass. If I shave the grass, all that will happen is I will have short grass. I will not have wheat. It, it, even if I sow wheat into that, I will just have grass mixed with wheat. What I need is I need to be plowed up and re-sown. Jesus is saying our sinful hearts need to be plowed up and we need to be re-sown. And Jesus can do that. And you and I as common grounders in this moment are those people in our society who recognize the problem, not just out there. Yes, we want to solve the problems of the world, but we recognize that we're going to start by solving the problem in our own hearts, by coming to Christ and saying, Jesus, plow up my heart and re-sow your nature within me. We are those people. We're not the moral police. We're not the people with all of the answers. We're the people who are humble enough to say, Jesus, there is something that is wrong inside of me. Will you cleanse me? Will you make me new? And will you begin to start sprouting new fruit in and through my life in this world? We're a gospel people. We're a gospel people. The highest authority in our lives is God and His Word. And He is going to constantly grow us as He calls us to do things we wouldn't do in our culture. And that's going to be uncomfortable at times. But God has got license to do that. Because this faith goes below the surface. And He's growing us to be so much more. We are a people 
who are dependent on Christ to do what only Christ can do. Dallas Willard, we must land here, wrote this extraordinary book called The Renovation of the Heart. We are those people who say, Jesus, take my heart. Will you renovate me? In a moment, but day by day, some of you have been involved in renovations. Some of you have seen renovations take shape. We're trusting if we can play our cards right over the next few months and fly under the radar here, hence very quietly, that we don't upset the apple cart too much, we're going to be able to do a renovation here that looks like a great big auditorium that we will be able to meet in into the future very secretly. We're not recording this, are we? Right? <laughs> hence the soft volume, etc., etc. There's a renovation that's going to happen. There's going to be walls that are going to need to be broken down. There's going to be uh, boundaries that are going to need to be expanded. There's going to be new things that are going to take shape. That is your heart and that is my heart as we invite Christ to renovate our inner beings. We who are unclean are incapable of doing it ourselves. We're those people who've invited Christ in. You made it. Goodness gracious me. Come, let's come before God. Can we stand together? Mark and Shay, can I invite you to come? Guys, one of the things we've missed as we've been scattered in our homes is the opportunity to stand together as the people of God in the presence of God and ask Jesus to do what only He can do. And I think young and old from six-year-olds standing in front of you, you don't have to be old for this. You, don't, you, you can be 100 years old. You can ask God to do this. You can be six years old. You can ask God to do this. We are those people who are asking God to freshly renovate our hearts. Can we bring our hearts before Jesus? We who are unclean. We who are unclean. Not because of what is outside, but because of what has lived in us. And Christ can renovate us and make us new. And so let's come and ask God to do that. Jesus, sometimes it's so hard to do the right thing. Kids, as we pray now, you think about this. Is it hard or is it easy to do the right thing? Sometimes it's so hard to do the right thing. Sin is alive in me. This rebellious thing is alive in me, Jesus. But you, Christ, come. You who are clean where I am not clean can make me clean. Jesus, will you come and do that freshly in my life? Christ, I'm, I'm not asking you for seven simple steps to do. I'm not asking you to click your finger and make a, a, you know, do these exercises and then. Jesus, I'm asking you to reach down into the core of my being and to change who I am, to put a new heart at the center of me. God, I, you don't have to convince me that there's things who live, that live there that shouldn't be there. Jesus, will you come and dispel them? Come and drive those bad things out, Christ, and put good nature at the core of me. I'm, I'm inviting you, Jesus, to renovate my heart freshly. And here's my first step, Lord. I'm freshly coming under your authority, Jesus. Your voice, the loudest in my life. Above my culture, Jesus. Above media. Above friends. 
above the voice of society. Jesus, above even my own heart. Who, who, who are you really going to follow with your life? When push comes to shove, a crisis moment, is God allowed to lead you where your heart may not want to go? Is he allowed to know better than you? Is God on the leash of our will and our feelings and our fears and our desires? Oh God, right now, come and take your proper place in my heart. Take a second just to do business with Jesus personally there. Jesus, you are the king. I'm not the king. Jesus, you are the king. And let's sing together.